0: How is everybody? Okay, so thanks, thanks for the cat call. Um so last week at the nine, and I'm not trying to pick on them, I love the nine o'clockers, but I was like, hey, how is everyone? And it was, I mean it was like dead silent. So I asked again and I was like, how is everyone? Dead silent, right? So I went into like angry old man dad teacher mode for about 10 minutes. And did this whole like spiel on how blessed we are and we're in this great room and we live in the freest nation in the world and we're at church and all this stuff, right? And so then I asked again, like, how are you guys? (laughs) All right, good. So yeah, don't make me go into like dad mode. I don't wanna do that. Angry, fiery preacher mode. I don't wanna do that. So um, hey, let me give a quick shout out to... uh, Salvation Army. They are in the back and they need bell ringers, the people that stand in front of Kroger and Belk and Hobby Lobby and Walmart and they collect money. Salvation Army is one of the greatest nonprofits in America and we love to partner with them. So you should think about, ponder, uh, I don't know, just walk back there and sign up to be a bell ringer. You don't have to do a whole shift. You can break it up between you and your friends and all that stuff, but they need your help and um, really, really great organization. So think about doing that. Okay, so we are in the book of Revelation. Thank you for coming back this week. I know last week was brutal. Um, I didn't sleep well last weekend because I thought everyone hated me. And so uh, this week, I didn't hear anyone rebut that. But anyways, (laughs) this week, we are in chapter 10. It's a short chapter, and it's an encouraging chapter, which is like makes my life better. I'll sleep well tonight. Looking forward to that and uh, where we are is we're in the thick of it. We've been in the thick of it for quite some time. Now, if you have not been here for Revelation, it starts to get thick in about chapter 5. Chapter 5, we see that God is holding a scroll in his hand, gives this scroll to Jesus, who starts to break open this scroll, and we start to see the future unfold The first set of events is called the seals. He's breaking these seals and things are starting to happen on earth and and spiritual things are starting to happen. We go through that first set of events. We get into this kind of a pause. There's an interlude where we focus in chapter 7 on a small group of people who are on earth and then a much larger group of people who are in heaven during the great tribulation. That's the last seven years that kind of humanity as we know it is on earth We move on from there into the second set of events, (coughs) which is called the trumpets. The trumpets begin and they intensify. It's a lot more intense than the first set of events. We see these ecological catastrophes and at the end of chapter eight, there's this angel that flies over and basically says, if you thought those things were bad, it's gonna get worse. He said, catastrophe, catastrophe, catastrophe. And then we get into chapter nine And we see that he was right. It gets much worse. We see that there's an army that rises up from the east and comes west and kills a third of humanity, and they come in. And we see by the end of the sixth trumpet that one third of humanity is killed. But that's not the most fascinating thing about chapter 9. The most fascinating thing is, is that after billions of people are slaughtered and murdered, the people remaining still did not turn their eyes to God. They still did not repent for the things that they did wrong. So, chapter ten, we're going to go from kind of a, a heavenly vantage point. John's been kind of up here looking down, to where John is now going to become a part of the action. He's going to be right in the middle of it. We're going to hear about a mighty angel that he talks to, and we're going to talk about a small scroll, which is kind of the the, the main focus of chapter 10, okay? So, you should have notes handouts in front of you. has everything I'm going to say in it. This, I believe, is the shortest chapter of all of Revelation. It's only 11 verses long. It's very, very short. Everything will be on the screens. If you have a smartphone, the Experience Community app, if you download that, click on services at the bottom and sermon notes, everything is there, including the scripture. And if you have a Bible, we're in the very last book of the Bible, and we're in the 10th chapter, okay? So, I think we should be in good shape. All right? So let me pray. We will get into chapter 10. And again, hopefully you will be encouraged by this. All right? Lord Jesus, God, we love you. Lord, we thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, for everyone in this room. Thank you, God, uh, that we can come into this place, that we can hear your word, that we can laugh together and we can get serious together, God, and, and we can reflect on what your word says and not just hear it, but Lord, that we can go out and do it. Father, we pray that you bless every church in our community, pray that you bless all the great nonprofits in our community, Lord, specifically we want to pray for Salvation Army and all the wonderful things they do this time of year, God, not just in our city but all over the nation, and Father, Lord, we just pray that everything we do today honors you and that we grow from it and that you're proud of what we're doing, Lord. We love you, we thank you, and we praise you, God, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm going to read a little bit, I'm going to do my best to break it down, okay, here we go. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun, his legs were like pillars of fire, and he held a little scroll opened in his hand. He put his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he cried out, The seven thunders raised their voices, and when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. So like I said before, if you have been with us for the book of Revelation, or if you haven't, the first kind of chapters four through nine are really John speaking from from up here looking down on everything, except for chapter seven. Now, in chapter 10, we see that John is on earth, and he's not just a spectator of what's happening. He's right in the middle of the action. So, chapter 10 is very John focused. We're really going to focus in on the author of the book of Revelation. Now, what John is doing in chapter 10 is he is going to be accepting his role as a prophet, accepting his role as the guy who is going to deliver this revelation. From Jesus, okay? That's kind of the thesis of this chapter. Now, like before the seventh seal, if you were with us during the seals, we covered the first six seals, events, then there was a pause, and then the seventh seal. We're seeing again, we cover the first six trumpets, there's a pause, and then there is the seventh trumpet. This kind of gives a little bit more evidence that that seventh event of these three different series of events is the same, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. The seventh event is the same. Now, like I said, chapter 10 is an interlude. It's a pause. It's a break. And the whole chapter is essentially about John's and our responsibility to communicate the gospel, the message about Jesus, to non-believers. So chapter 10 calls John, that's in our past, right? That happened a couple of thousand years ago. Chapter 11, that we'll hit next week, calls some prophets that will be the last prophets to communicate the gospel before Jesus comes back. That's our future. And everything in between is us. It is our responsibility to teach this word, to talk to people about Jesus. We are the in-between. So as John is on earth he sees this mighty angel come down and we get one of the most descriptive accounts of angels in the entire Bible. The first thing he says, he says this angel is wrapped up in a cloud. If you translate that literally, it means that the angel looked like the atmosphere, like the sky. Now what that symbolizes is it symbolizes that God's presence was with this angel. Okay, God was with this angel. It says that there was a rainbow over his head. Now, more than likely, this is the same kind of rainbow that we see in Revelation chapter 4, an emerald rainbow, different shades of green. Now, we talked about that that symbolizes mercy. Rainbows also biblically symbolize integrity or a promise, okay? So this angel comes down, and we know that he's trustworthy because of this rainbow, Said that his face was like the sun. This is how Jesus looked in Revelation chapter 1. That doesn't mean this is Jesus. It just means that there was a brilliance, a radiance that came off this angel. What I think is the most fascinating part of the description is it said that the angel's legs were like pillars of fire. If you go back to Exodus chapter 13, the the, the Jewish people, the children of Israel, when they came out of the promised land on their way, I'm sorry, when they came out of Egypt on the way to the Promised Land, It says at night that they followed pillars of fire. Were were these angels leading them through the wilderness? I I don't know, but I think that's really, really interesting. It's also interesting that I have fire tattooed on my leg and kind of alludes that I'm kind of angelic as well. Anyways, (laughs) it says that this angel, or or I was just a dummy, right, for getting big flames on my legs. Anyways, the angel comes down, (laughs) says that he puts his right foot on the sea And his left foot on the land. Now this isn't necessarily about how big the angel is. Though he might have been this huge angel. It's more than likely showing that the angel has authority over the earth. Over the sea. And over the land. And in this angel's hand he held a scroll. But we're not going to talk about that yet. We're going to get to that later on in the lesson. Okay. Now some theologians believe that this angel is Jesus. It doesn't really make any sense. One, Jesus has never called an angel in the Bible. Two, if it was Jesus, John would have instantly fell down and worshipped him. And three, this angel takes an oath to God. Jesus wouldn't take an oath to himself. So what most scholars have concluded is, is this is not Jesus. This is the angel Gabriel. Now, Gabriel has showed up several times in Scripture. In fact, there are four different people that the angel Gabriel has come and visited and brought a message to. Daniel... Zechariah, Mary, and now to John. And John is the last human that we know of that has ever received a message directly from the angel Gabriel. It also says he cried out in a loud voice. Now, if you've been with us through Revelation, there's a lot of volume in Revelation. When you study the book of Revelation, you can almost kind of picture in your brain or imagine how loud heaven is. There's so much. There's thunder and there are peals of lightning and all these different things that we talk about in Revelation. There's a lot of volume. But this one is unique. It sounded like a lion. This voice sounded like a lion's voice. And it demanded an immediate response. So not only is his voice unique, this angel, the response is very unique as well. The response comes from these seven thunders. I have studied the heck out of this, and no one knows what it is. There's a lot of speculation, but nowhere in the Bible, except for here, does it mention these seven thunders. Not only do we not know who these people are, but we also don't know what they said. It's interesting. Earlier on in the book of Revelation, John was told to write. Jesus said, I'm going to speak a bunch of stuff to you, write it all down. Now here, John is about to write again, and he hears the voice of God say, don't write it down. What they're telling you, don't write this down. They are untold revelations. So these could possibly be things that are going to happen, but we're not going to know they're going to happen until they start to unravel and unfold. Now listen. I come from a charismatic background. I'm not against all charismatic people. But in charismatic circles, we have to be very, very careful. It becomes a slippery slope when we talk about revelations. Because a lot of people will say, well, I, I got a revelation from God. Now, here's the thing. God still reveals things to believers, but he will never reveal anything that contradicts his own word. So if someone says to you, I got a revelation from God, Right? If a 14-year-old kid comes out of the woods and says, I just got a revelation from an angel of light about a new New Testament, that's called Mormonism, by the way, whenever there is a revelation that contradicts the Bible, it might be a revelation, but it's not from God. So at the very end of the book of Revelation, it says, do not add to this book. So when a 14-year-old kid adds a completely New Testament to the New Testament, you know that's not of God. You shouldn't follow that. In Galatians 1.8, it says, any kind of gospel besides the one that I'm teaching, Paul says, is from demons. It's from hell, okay? So if anyone has a revelation, you have to go to the Word and make sure that it lines up with the Word of God. Now, my friend David Pawson, he's not really my friend. I've never met him, but I like him a lot, and I think we would be friends. (laughs) The theologian David Pawson believes that these seven thunders are telling John what God could do to to, to further try to get their attention, but he's not going to do. Now, this is important. What that means is David Possum believes that these voices are saying to John, I could do more ecological disasters. We could do more plagues. We could have more wars, all these things, but I'm choosing not to do that because God's last ditch effort is going to come from a very unlikely source. Going to come from people. But we'll get to that later, okay? I'll get to that a little bit later in this lesson. So then the angel that I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand in heaven. He swore by the one who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. There will no longer be a delay. But in the days when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet, then the mystery of God will be completed as he announced to his servants the prophets. So what happens is this, the fact that the angel comes down and stands on the sea and the land, that must have got John's attention. He mentions it three times. He must have been very impressed by this he was also impressed that this angel comes down, raises his right hand, and swears an oath to God. Now, raising the right hand to swear an oath is a very familiar thing. If you've ever been in court, put your hand on a Bible or whatever religious text you subscribe to, and you basically swear to God to tell the truth. Now, this has happened a couple of times in the Bible, but but very, very rarely, only twice by angels is an oath like this sworn. When the angel swears this oath, He swears it by the one that lives forever and ever. Now, this kind of gives us the illusion, if you were here for chapter four of Revelation, if you weren't here, you should go back and read that chapter, one of the best in the entire Bible. But we think about the throne room of God. We also think about the fact that God's eternal life, the fact that he has always existed, exists right now and will exist for eternity, that gives us hope. We follow the God that created all things. That leads to the second part. He created the heavens, he created the earth, he created the sea. So not only the fact that God has always been here, but that God has eternal power, that gives us comfort. It is worth swearing an oath to this God. Now the oath that he swears, he says, there will no longer be a delay. What the angel is swearing to is he is answering the question that mankind has always been asking ever since we've been created, when is it going to come to an end? When is all of this going to end? Jesus' disciples even asked this question. In Matthew chapter 24, they pulled Jesus aside and they said, hey, when are you gonna come back? And Jesus talked about a lot of the stuff that we've been covering in Revelation. The answer to the question, when is he going to come back is kind of ambiguous, it's clear, but also ambiguous. He says, in the days of when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet, then the mystery of God will be completed. Basically, he's saying, When the seventh trumpet blows, it's done. No more time to change. No more time to think about what you've done with your life. No time to repent. God is coming back. Now here's what's fascinating. Christians shouldn't be shocked by this. In fact, the angel says that this isn't new news. The prophets of God have been receiving the message that God is coming back for thousands and thousands of years. God had sent multiple prophets to tell humanity that he's going to come back. He's going to judge those who are not righteous. He's going to reward those who were righteous. Now what's interesting in chapter 10 is John is now learning that he will be the last prophet to record and to write down not only that Jesus is coming back but in graphic detail of how Jesus is coming back. So now from John on out, there is no excuse for Christianity not to be prepared. We should know that God is coming back. Now, here's the thing. Every generation thought Jesus was coming back in their generation. Those of you who are old enough to remember, in 1988, there was a book written, 88 Reasons Why Christ is Coming Back in 1988. That didn't happen. If it did, we're kind of screwed. But anyways, every generation... <laughs> has those people that say, well, God's going to come back. In fact, I, I decoded something and he'll be back Thursday, right? And we hear this every single generation. Now, whether Christ comes back in a thousand years or whether Jesus does come back next Thursday, the point is not when. The point is Christians are to be longing for his return and we are to be preparing for his return. So even if his second coming is generations away, it's irrelevant. The other side of that is the book of James says our life is short. So even if his return is a 1,000 years away, our lifespans at the very most are going to be 120 years. But rarely do people live that long. In fact, the book of James says our life is like a vapor. We're not even promised tomorrow. In 2017, I did seven or eight funerals, all for people under the age of 30. Seven or Eight just from people in this church who died under the age of 30. That's young. So we're not promised longevity. So we all have to live in such a manner to where we have a sense of urgency that any of our time can end at any time. So can our children, so can our spouses, so can our friends, so can our coworkers. So we need to have a sense of urgency about our own walk with God, and we need to have a sense of urgency about other people's walks with God. We have a responsibility. That leads us into the next part. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will be bitter in your stomach, but sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and I ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I ate it, my stomach became bitter. And they said to me, that's the seven thunders, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So back to this small scroll, this is kind of the crux of today's lesson. The same voice that John heard in verse four now tells him to go up to the angel and take the scroll. Now this is not the same scroll that we talked about that Jesus took. The scroll in chapter five is rolled up and sealed and only Jesus is worthy to comprehend it and only Jesus is worthy to open it. Now this scroll is small and it's already open And it's offered to John, which means that John can comprehend what it says, that he can take it, that it's for him, okay, and it's open so he can understand it. Now, what we see here is this. The way that revelations have come to humanity through the Bible are like this. You have God to Jesus, Jesus to the angels. The angels then deliver these revelations to prophets, apostles, leaders, and then they lead these to the general public. Now that doesn't mean like pastors like me receive everything from angels. I've never had an angel come by my office and be like, hey pastor, I got that scroll for you to eat. That's never happened to me. God tells me things, I communicate it to my church. This is talking about prophetic revelations in the Bible. This is how these prophets received this information and delivered it to the general public. So as John walks over to the angel, He asks the angel for the scroll. Can I have the scroll? And then John is told to eat the scroll, consume it. But he's warned. He says, once you eat it, John, it's gonna be really sweet at first, but when it gets into your stomach, it's going to be very, very bitter. Now listen, John is not literally eating a scroll. This is a play on words. Like when we say, uh, chew on this, or meditate on this, or think about that. What this was is the scroll represented John's responsibility, his mission that God wanted him to do. And the angel is saying, think about this. Meditate on this. Digest this. Similar things were written in the book of Psalms. David in Psalm 19 and Psalm 119, he kind of associates meditating on God and thinking about our mission that we're supposed to do for God. He kind of associates that as eating honey go back and read Psalms 19 or Psalms 119. He says, meditating on God is like eating honey. It's a very sweet thing to do. It's a very pleasant thing to do. That's what he refers to. So John records, he says, I took the scroll and I ate it. He did this just like Ezekiel did this. He did the exact same thing. And what John was doing was by eating the scroll, by digesting the words, by consuming this, he was accepting his role as a leader. He was accepting his role as someone to communicate the revelation of Jesus Christ, specifically his second coming, to humanity. He was accepting what God has called him to do. Now look at this, this is so important. Two things happened when he ingested it. Just like the angel said, at first, it was very sweet. That's the initial joy of doing what God has called us to do. Just like when a lot of you first became Christians, right? I don't know if anyone, anyone else was the obnoxious Christian like I was. I was working at a coffee shop called the Red Rose when I first got saved, and I remember I became a Christian, and I was like that obnoxious Christian. People would come up, and they're like, hey, I want a latte, and I'm like, you want Jesus with that latte? You know, and like your <laughs> boss is like, you can't say that, and I was that guy, I was at church all the time. They had to like dim the lights at the end of service, which means, Corey, it's time to go home. I was that Christian. It was very sweet at first. But just like John, he ingests his ministry, his calling, his responsibility. He's like, yeah, that feels good. And then it started to settle in his stomach. Now what that means is once it kind of settled, the reality of the fact that being a Christian is not easy started to set into his stomach. Now, I put true Christianity. What that means is a lot, of people, a lot of people call themselves Christians, and they've never had to suffer for their faith. It's never been a struggle for them like what Kyle talked about. There's never been those moments in their life when they've had to really be tested. But for those of us who truly follow Christ, there are times when it is bitter. It is very, very difficult. It's interesting. The book of Revelation has been like this, hasn't it? When I announce to the church we're going to be doing Revelation, everyone's like, yeah, Revelation. And then we get into the middle of it when God calls us to change, and it gets a little bitter, right? Everyone's like, nah, Corey's kind of a jerk, you know, and like people don't like getting into that stuff. It's hard. And it's the case for Christianity in general. When we first start off, there's like this euphoric feeling. And then you start getting persecuted a little bit. Then you have some friends separate from you. Then you have people treat you differently. But here's the thing. If we are truly following God's will, it is going to be difficult at times. I guarantee you, all of you in this room, if you are faithful to Christ, there will come a time in your Christianity where you will look in the mirror and go, am I nuts for believing this? Am I crazy for doing this? Of course, by the grace of God, we push through those moments because the dedicated Christian, dedicated is the word there, we will experience suffering. Why do you say that, Corey? Because Jesus said in this life there will be suffering. We will experience heartache. We will experience stress. I get a kick out of those Christians who try to guilt everyone, right? They put on social media, too blessed to be stressed. You know what I read when I see that? You're just too lazy to work hard, right? Like life is full of stress. And just because you're stressed doesn't mean you're a bad Christian. That means that you're probably working your butt off to be a good dad and a good husband and to pay the bills and to be everything you're supposed to be. It gets stressful. Man, Jesus Christ, when he was bleeding from his forehead in the Garden of Gethsemane, was stressed. That doesn't mean there was anything wrong with Christ. It means he had a lot on his mind, just like a lot of you guys do. But we must remember that the rewards, the stress, the suffering, the heartache, the pain, the pushing through is worth it because the rewards are bigger. The rewards are greater than all those things we go through. So remember this last-ditch effort that I talked about earlier in the lesson? Little spoiler alert. When we get into chapter 11, chapter 11 is where the end comes. Now, I still, I, we got a lot of revelation left to cover. I'll explain that. But in chapter 11, that's when humanity kind of comes to an end as we know it. And one of the themes, though, So far in the book of Revelation has been that God will go through extreme measures to get his people's attention, to get them to repent. But here's what's interesting. The last ditch effort, the last thing that God is going to use to try to get humanity's attention is not going to be plagues, It's not going to be supernatural cosmic disturbances. It's not going to be ecological catastrophes. It's not going to be angels flying overhead. The last thing that God is going to use before he comes back is he is going to send people to teach the word. He knows that the word is more powerful even than earthquakes and even the sun turning dark, even more than plagues and and a third of the population being killed. He knows that the word of God, the truth, taught by his followers, is the greatest weapon. So in chapter, I'm sorry, in chapter 10 and verse 11, the very last verse, after John accepts his calling, these voices say, now you must go tell people. You must go tell nations, you must go tell people, you must go tell kings, all languages, you must go out. Once John accepted his call, once he accepted his scroll, his responsibility, there was no turning back. Everyone's like, yeah, that's right, rock on, John. Here's the thing, every single one of you in this room, whether you are a believer right now or not a believer, all of us are offered a scroll. All of us are offered a responsibility from God That responsibility that all of us are offered, where God metaphorically holds out his hand with something that you can comprehend, you can digest, and that you are able to accomplish with his grace and his help and his spirit, he offers it to all of us. And that responsibility is not only to live out our faith, listen to me so carefully, not just to live it out, but we are to communicate and tell people about Jesus, I know we live in a culture right now where no one wants to offend everyone, right? Well, Corey, I don't want to offend anyone by talking about Jesus. Look, everyone's already offended already, right? We're offended about everything. Might as well jump in the mix and throw Jesus in there, right? And so everyone says, well, I, I just, I don't want to, I don't want to beat people. over. You're not beating people over the head. If your friend at work's marriage is falling apart and you know the Holy Spirit of God can save it, you're doing them a disservice by not telling them about Jesus. If someone is suicidal because they're drowning in depression and you just don't want to offend, listen. Oh boy, I almost used a word that I shouldn't. I would rather make you very mad You can substitute whatever word I would have thrown in there. I would would rather make you very, very mad at me, and then eventually that seed take root in your mind and save your soul. I would rather you be mad at me than you love me and you go to hell. That's just me. So listen, listen, all throughout the New Testament, they weren't just told to live it, they were told to speak it and communicate it. So whenever we get this whole thing, well, I don't want to offend. Guys, I'm not asking you to run into the office with a King James Bible and just beat someone to death next to you. I'm not asking you to do that. You'll go to jail for that, right? I'm just asking you to build a relationship with people and when the time is right, you need to communicate what has changed your life because it will change their life as well. Now, where does this start? It starts in your home. Listen, I'm not, against people, I'm not against people praying in school. It's wonderful if people want to pray in school. But let me just be like that guy. It is not the public school system's job to pray with your kids. Parents, it is your job. Instead of everyone barking about your teacher praying for your kid all the time, maybe you should pray that kid up before they go to school, Right? So we're constantly, in this world, trying to pass the buck to someone else. But if you're a parent in this place, your child is no one's responsibility except for yours. It's no one else's. I don't even want the public school system teaching my kid theology. I want to teach my kid theology. I want to be the one to lead them and guide them and make them into the person that they're supposed to be. Because that's what parents are supposed to do. It starts in the home. A good marriage starts in the home. Good relationships start in the home. It doesn't stay there, though. Our responsib- responsibility goes out to our friends. If you truly love people, you will share with them the good news. It extends out to your workplace. Now, again, am I, am I advocating for you to go in and just start barking Scripture at people? No, 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 no. But maybe buy your office, you know, a dozen donuts and bring them some coffee. Don't buy our office donuts. There's like a conspiracy to get me fat or something. Bring me carrots or something, not donuts. Take your office donuts. Take them coffee. Let people know that you love them and care about them. Ask people out to lunch. Ask people into your home. Go the extra mile. It should extend out to your microcosm. The gym you go to, the the coffee shop you go to, the grocery store, whatever that world looks like. People think it's just because I'm obsessive compulsive, but I actually have a plan with this. I go to the same coffee shops every week. I go to the same grocery store. I go through the same line at the same grocery store all the time. That's so I can get to know people. That's so I can start to memorize their name. Man, you freak people out when you call them by their name, right? Hey, Steve, you doing all right? Oh my God, yes, I'm good. It's like they don't know how to handle niceness anymore. I love it. Learn people's names. Go out of your way. Affect your microcosm. We also have a responsibility to our city. We don't bring organizations like Salvation Army and make a video just so we can pat ourselves on the back. We do that because it is Christianity's responsibility to change the city. The local church is the hope of the city. It is the hope of the community, and we must positively impact our city. We must positively impact our nation. Five years ago when this church started giving a pretty good chunk of change to a bunch of churches up in New England, that's because we have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters in an area where Christianity is failing. We have a responsibility to help them. We're all on the same team. And it's not just a financial thing. We sent uh, someone up a couple of years ago to, to Massachusetts to be a worship leader. We're sending a young man, Jordan, that comes to church here up to Burlington, Vermont, and he's gonna live there for a year and do student ministry up there and help them. It's us getting their backs and helping them. We're also called to help the earth, right? I can't wait to tell you all the great things we're doing in Uganda in 2019, and El Salvador, and I just got a hold of a pastor in Stockholm, Sweden, the least-churched city in the in, in, in the entire world. The least—it's two million people, and the biggest church in Stockholm is 500 people. And I got a hold of that pastor, and I started talking with that pastor, and seeing what our church can do for people in the least-churched area in the world. It's our responsibility. Now, listen—is that difficult? The most emphatic yes I can possibly tell you. Listen, if you fall in love with Christ and if you fall in love with people, people will break your heart a thousand times over. I can't tell you how many knives I've had to pull out of my back since I've been a pastor at this church. People will hurt you, they will talk about you, they will gossip about you, they will be awful. But we have to know that that one marriage that is saved is worth it. That that one person that accepts Christ is worth it. That those, that those families that are restored are worth it. That the people that we pull out of poverty, it's worth it. These things are worth the pain. It's worth the heartache. Here's the thing though. We'll get to this next week. God in his infinite wisdom God in his infinite wisdom knew that his word and our stories of what God has done for us, he knew that those things were more powerful than earthquakes, more powerful than plagues, more powerful than martyrdom, more powerful than all these things. And here's what I want to leave you guys with today. God has chosen you and I to be his greatest weapons against eternal damnation. He has chosen you and I to be his greatest weapons to fight against evil. He has chosen us to be his vessels, the ones that hold the key to unlock salvation and hope and change and restoration. That's us. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus looks at his followers Now, there's a time between the Old and New Testament where God didn't speak to humanity. There was no new revelations from God for 400 plus years. Jesus is born. He's 30 years old. He's about to start his ministry. And the first sermon he ever teaches, look at what he says. It's in Matthew chapter 5. He looks at his followers and he blows their minds. He says, you're the salt. He looked at his followers and he said, you are the people that will make life worth living on planet earth. He takes it up a notch and he says, you are the light. And he says, if you're the light, you're not supposed to cover up the light in fear of offending someone. He says, you're supposed to put the light up on a hill. And when the light's on a hill, it shines down and it lights up the entire city. Jesus looked at his followers and he said, you're it. You are going to make great change. You are going to be the catalyst of spreading the most important news that the kingdom is coming. You are the ones responsible for doing this. But he doesn't leave them there because you and I know we're going to mess it up, right? That we're going to be weak, that we're incapable, that we're not strong enough to do this. So he doesn't leave us there. At the very end of the gospel of Matthew as he's ascending up into heaven in a cloud. He looks at his followers and he says, go out, change the world around you. But he doesn't, he doesn't leave them there either. And he says, I am with you. I am with you until the ends of the age, which means he fills us with his spirit and he gives us the ability to be the fathers and mothers that we need to be. He gives us the abilities to be the educators and people in the workforce that we need to be. He gives us the ability to spread the good news to all corners of the earth, to all all kinds of people, all languages and tongues and colors and socioeconomic status. And regardless of their mistakes and regardless of our mistakes, That when we're weak, he steps up and he is strong despite us. And he looks at you and he looks at me and he says, I trust you to change people's worlds. That's you. That's me. Now, what is the chasm between that? It is you and I accepting our responsibility. Listen, will it be hard? I, I would think over 10 years of doing this church thing, it'll be 10 years in February, I would think that it would get easier. In a church of 4,000 people plus, when I get stabbed in the back, you would think it would be a little bit easier over time. It never is. It always hurts. People will always let you down. It will always fail you. But by the grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we continue to push forward. We still fight for marriage. We still fight for family. We still fight for our schools. We still fight for our government. We still fight for our economics. We still fight for our culture and our society. And by the time Jesus comes back, this guy believes there will be a great revival. And a lot of people will turn back to Christ. But listen, it's not gonna come from an earthquake. It's not gonna come from an angel. It's gonna come from you and me. That's where it's gonna come from. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Hey, listen, I'm gonna do something just a little different today. First, if you're in this room and maybe you're not a Christian or maybe you're a new Christian, if you have any questions just about what Christianity is, any of that stuff, Greg is up here to my right, your left. He's wearing a button-up shirt. Come up, and if you have any questions, come up here and talk to Greg. He's one of the pastors here. He can help you. He can point you in the right direction. He may not know everything, but he he knows a lot. And so come up here and talk to him. Now, here's what's a little different this week. Everyone who has a prayer request, you are more than welcome to come up to the front, and there will be people on the left and right, men and women, that'll pray with you. Everyone's welcome to do that. But here's something I want to ask. If you are in this room and you have maybe a fear of the responsibility that God is asking you to do. For some of you, it may be to get your marriage together, your family together. For some of you, it may be a legitimate call. Maybe you feel called to do something, to to preach or to teach or to lead. Maybe you just feel called to pray more for your school or for your friends or reach out to your workplace, whatever the responsibility is that you feel like God is presenting you. Why don't you come up here and let some people agree with you, bind with you, pray with you, and say, we're going to tackle this together. We're, gonna, we're, we're, we're a team here. Let's pray for courage. Let's pray for strength. Let's pray for opportunity. The last thing is there's communion all the way around you. Everyone is welcome to take communion. It's the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's a reminder that God is always with us. He died for us. He loves us. He sent his spirit to fill us, to not leave us alone. Everyone is welcome to take communion as long as you ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins. Let me pray for you. Lord, I love you. Father, I don't know where the people in this room are, God. I don't know what responsibility that maybe they've slacked on or maybe that they've totally ignored or or maybe they've accepted it, but they're scared. God, whatever that responsibility is, Lord, I pray that you give them strength. I pray that you give them boldness to approach you with any questions or help that they need. I pray that you strengthen us, God. I pray that you give us courage, Lord. Lord, bless our schools. Bless our local government, God. Bless our workplace. Bless our families and our marriages, God. Bless the single people in this place, God. Lord, let us be the salt. Lord, let us be the light that's not ashamed to be bright. Father, we love you. We lift you up. I pray blessings over everyone in this room, God. In Jesus' name, amen. And I love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself.